Dodnet Rocks episode 798 with guest Chris Patterson. Recorded live Saturday, August 25th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard, and we're here as we are twice a week, every week, for your amusement. <laughs> <laughs> or bemusement, whichever. <laughs> whatever works for you. Yeah, man. How are, how are you over there in Vancouver, sir? I'm, uh, I'm great, actually. You know, things are good, and I'm totally stoked about what the oatmeal's done. What is the oatmeal? So the oatmeal is this crazy comic, and this, the guy's name is Matthew Inman. Uh, I think uh, Scott Hanselman interviewed him one time uh, when they were at a conference together. So this is a guy who was trying to make money off the web. I th- he, you know, if you read his whole history, it's like he he had a, a free dating site, and he was creating comics to help promote the dating site, and the comics became more popular than the dating site. So now he just got rid of the dating site and just draws these comics. Ah, but talk about plugged into the internet culture. So. He complained on his comic that there was this website out there that was basically copying chunks of his comic and republishing it to collect ad revenue. And he's like, hey, you know, at least ask. Right. You know, it's, it's not fair what you're doing here. Well, apparently this guy was a lawyer and, and threatened him with a lawsuit if he didn't pay him $25,000. Wow. Like, it's just crazy, nutty thinking, okay? That's savetoby.com all over again. Exactly. That sort of thing. So what does the oatmeal do? He publishes the threatening letter, and he says to his fans, look, I'm going to raise money for a cancer charity. I want to raise $25,000. I'm going to take out the money in cash. I'm going to photograph it, send this guy a photograph, and then donate the money to this charity. So what happens? He raises $250,000. Oh, my God. So he takes it out, photographs it, and then sends him the picture. And in the meantime, this whole outcry about this guy trying to, you know, threatening him with legal action over him stealing, you know, it's crazy. All these lawyers lined up and said, no, we'll take care of this. So needless to say, it did not go well for this guy. Uh, but the Oatmeal's is a huge fan of Tesla, and he's written some great, hilarious comics about Tesla. I think he's a little too... Ra- I mean, I, I like Tesla, Are we too. talking Nikolai Tesla? Nikolai talk- Tesla. Oh, not Tesla, the automobile company. No, Nikola Tesla, right? So he's a big fan of Tesla, you know, reams on what Edison did to him. We, we had did a lot of this in the, in the, uh, the electricity show. In the show electricity show, point. right, yeah. Uh, so it turns out that one of Tesla's last projects, which is a place called Wardenclyffe, uh, is up for sale. Hmm. The property. And while his original project's all gone, the original building is still there. And so there's this idea to make it into a museum. Awesome. And so uh, New York State has offered to, because it's going to become a park and a museum, to cut, pay for 50%. The property is worth $1.7 million. Hmm. And so they were needed to raise $850,000, which, let's face it, that's a lot of money. It sure is. So... Uh, Oatmeal goes to Indiegogo, which is like Kickstarter. It's just a little, you know, slightly different set of rules. And mm-hmm. says, hey, it, and the project's called Let's Build a Goddamn Tesla Museum <laughs> to try and raise 850 grand. That's awesome. In the first day, raises $400,000. No. 
in nine days, he's over a million bucks. So oh they're my no God. longer trying to just buy the property. Now they're raising enough money to actually build the museum. Wow. So one of his contributors is none other than Elon Musk. Ah, uh, from Tesla Motors. Yeah. And so, SpaceX. So he's, yeah, and he tweeted that he did that and so forth. So I bet you he gets even more involved in it. Anyway, it looks like they're going to build a museum. And I just love this whole crowdsourced money. You know what's crazy is the internet is like this big brain with synapses making connections on various phrases, words, and images that are completely unrelated, like uh, like Tesla, like Nikolai Tesla and the Tesla Motor Company. Obviously, Elon Musk was watching the blogosphere and the Twitter sphere for any mention of Tesla. Finds this guy, ah, that sounds great. I would like to contribute. Isn't that cool? Yeah, it's that's awesome. probably what happened. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't surprise me, or it's certainly somebody certainly pointed out. I mean, the, the the oatmeal's got a following. He's he's his own thing. But I just love that he you know that he turned this ridiculous law suit thing into uh, a great fundraising opportunity for for a charity and, and did some good with that. And now I think he sort of realized, hey, you know, for stuff you care about, you've got a lot of people who are with you. So I'm awesome. I'm I got to go to that museum. I'm stoked. It's out your way, man. We're we're going when they build it. All right, I'm in. So better know framework. All right, let's do it. Yeah. So what do you well, got? Well, that was a great story, man. I wish every .NET rocks could start with a story that awesome because that's just <laughs> cool and it beats the hell out of my dumb jokes. All right. So did you know that one of the cool new features of .NET 4.5 is that on 64-bit platforms Arrays can be greater than two gigs. I did not know that. Because I have bumped up against the two gig limit so many times. I view really. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Kill me. Uh, Anyway, this is is a cool feature, actually. And if you go to tinyurl.com slash bigarrays, that brings you to the documentation on MSDN for the GC allow very large objects element, which is an element of the config file, which Whoa. you put in configuration runtime. GC allow very large objects enabled equals true or false. Wow. So if you're on a 64-bit platform, you want uh, more than two gigs in an array because, let's face it, I my machine now has 64 gigs of RAM. No, sure. it doesn't. <laughs> Just saying it could easily. Um, so there you go. Well, you know, move stuff into RAM. Keep it there. No kidding. Well, yeah, the two-gig limit is the user space limit, right? Yeah. It's, this is a conversation I have fairly often. We're talking with web developers. We I like running 64-bit OS on the web server, but I still compile the ASP app as a 32-bit because you they, then you're limited to two gigs of space and it works fine and so forth. And there's, you have this whole conversation about, well, why not just compile a 64-bit? It says, well, the only reason you want to do that is you need more than two gigs of space for rendering a web page. And if mm. you do, what are you doing? And, you know, the, the, the unanswered question is probably uh, made for somebody who really understands .NET at a core level or anyone who actually has, uh, um, you know, a decompiler or an ILDASM or something. Basically, if you enable arrays to be larger than uh, two gigs, does that also allow collections and lists and uh, and dictionaries and all those things? In other words, do dictionary, list, collection, do those use arrays at the heart yeah, of them? 
I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer, but you could easily find out with ILDASM. And if so, now all of a sudden, well, you know, we, we use collections now instead of arrays. So, and, you know, somebody like an F-sharp programmer who's dealing with a lot of data in collections and things, that could be quite nice. Yeah, awfully big, though. I yep. mean, really, there's not a lot of projects out there. I've just not been building anything compiled to 64-bit because I just don't need it. Yeah. You know, it hasn't been necessary. Yep, I agree. I like stay, staying in 32-bit, although I love 64-bit OS. I'll stay yep. 32-bit. 64-bit OS, 32-bit app. I like it. Like it. All right, Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 723, and that's the show we did with Damien Edwards and David Fowler about Signal R, uh, which is a while ago. But in, in honor of our guest, I thought this was a good comment. Uh, and this is from Martin Hayes, who says, Hi, guys, a great show. I like the way .NET Rocks always manages to bring complex topics and make them understandable and usable. Great. However, I do have a question. During the discussion about Signal Art, it was mentioned that it was a Moonlight project sort of going on in the background. As such, can we be certain of its longevity? I'm a little nervous of bringing new stuff into my projects only to see support and documentation for them wither and die. And, you know, before anybody gets hung up on Moonlight, that doesn't mean the mono implementation yeah. of Silverlight. That, yeah. As Richard said, it it was a, a side project. It was a side project. Yeah. And how do you guys judge what is a sticker and what is a flash in the pan? Martin, we have no idea. We don't know anything about Not anything. We're just making shit up, yeah. basically. <laughs> But we also do know, and that subsequent to you writing that comment and and our show with the guys about SignalR, it's now uh, no longer a side project. It's mm -hmm. part of uh, ASP.NET. It's rolling in its own bits, and it's not going away. So don't worry about it. It's a safe thing to use. It's going to be around a long, long time, and I believe our guest is also experimenting with it as well. Right. Uh, and so, Martin, for your comment, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online, over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by industry experts, 12 to 15 new courses every month, free 10-day trial, 200 minutes, a wide range of developer courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything Microsoft. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month, Pluralsight.com. Welcome to the show. And it's, uh, you know, it's a shame you haven't been on before, as Richard and I were saying just, uh, before the show, because you really do have a lot to offer the community. So welcome. Welcome to Donnet Rocks. Hello. It's great to be here. So I guess we should start with, uh, your, the project that you've been working on recently, which is Mass Transit. Tell us about Mass Transit. Okay. Well, Mass Transit is a project that we started towards the end of 2007. And when I say we, uh, myself and Drew Sellers, a developer for Dovetail out of Austin, Texas, uh, Mass Transit is a lightweight enterprise service bus for .NET. So when we hear the term service bus, it gets thrown around as this big enterprise architecture pattern for solving, you know, big enterprise problems. But with Mass Transit, we took more of a lightweight approach and we deal with kind of the basics of building messaging into your application, both point-to-point -point messaging and published subscribe messaging. And we do that on top of existing messaging libraries that already exist. You know, in the case of MSMQ, which comes with every Windows machine, or we use a system called RabbitMQ, which is a message broker built on top of Erlang. Wow. Cool. And this is obviously something that would run in an application server. 
somewhere, uh, maybe in the cloud, perhaps? Uh, it could really run anywhere. You you typically think of it as inside kind of your, your domain boundary. It's not something you're using to talk to the clients outside that are using a browser or something like that. Okay. But but it's more behind the firewall kind of inter-process, inter-application service communications and kind of an SOA-type architecture. Not kind of. It sounds exactly like an SOA architecture. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, well, I say kind of because when we think about SOA, we really had kind of SOA 1.0, mm-hmm. which was this heavily web service-oriented kind of RPC, constant connected. The WS star death. Yeah, whereas now with the messaging systems, we're evolving more to a SOA 2.0 model, which you know, 2.0 being highly overused, of course, but mm-hmm. it's more of an asynchronous paradigm or using messaging so that we're not temporally coupled to every service within our domain. So, and more, I mean, it's when I think about a real service bus, I think about the idea of being able to go off and ask for a service, not have to know where all your endpoints are in advance. Say, who's up? Okay, this is what I, this is the message I need you to process. You know, that mindset uh, is the far more modern way of thinking about a bus. Yeah, and so when you know when a when a service in the system produces a message, the application needs to process, such as a you know, create account message or submit order message, mm-hmm. it doesn't need to have high availability across the entire service farm. The The order processing service can be down because the messaging systems are durable. It right. saves the message until somebody reads it. So there's really no reason to concern yourself with whether the message will be processed. It'll be there. It's not going to be lost. Whereas with the old web service model, if you tried to call the order service and it was unavailable due to a database outage or a blockage or just some other kind of crash, what what happens to that order? It's sitting in a call stack and from service somewhere, and you know, the, the recovery scenarios become a lot more complicated. So how do we look at the, the – I mean, that's the fundamental characteristic of queuing. Right, that we have the MSMQ and 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 the related products like that, where once I push a message onto the queue, I know it's durable, it's going to survive. I can go down whatever could process it can go up and down. It's not going to go away until somebody can actually complete the work on it. Correct. So, it, what's the bus part when you get past the queue part? Uh, the bus part typically comes down to allowing us to publish things such as events. Mm-hmm and let interested services subscribe to those events. So, for instance, when an order is placed, I could produce an event that says, hey, an order was placed by this customer, and other systems can observe that event and make decisions based on that or calculate metrics or any other type of business process that would be triggered. You know, in a lot of cases, some of this stuff used to be triggered down in SQL triggers, which basically just makes transactions run longer. Right. I like to think of a message bus as a sort of a router that um, you program with logic, you know, instead of allowing, you know, the protocol sort of which takes declarative data that's in packets for routing, um, you know, it's all based on logic and rules. Yeah, there's, there's actually a pretty clear separation there with a bus and publish subscribe. A lot of times you're thinking about things like topics or high level attributes of the message. When you, when you talk about routing, you have to be careful because there's routing based on topics or types. You know, in the case of mass transit, we route based on types because mm. C-sharp's a typed language. We have types, so let's use them to our advantage. Right. You know, when you think of the big message broker, like something like BizTalk, 
what you're dealing with there is more of content-based routing and actually breaking apart the message and looking at the content and making business decisions within the broker itself as far as where that message should be routed to. So there's, we don't do that in mass transit because content-based routing is, it's a very expensive process and didn't really fit into what we were trying to do with mass transit. Right. I see. So, so how would it compare to say end service bus, Udi Dahan's, uh, service message bus? Uh, and service bus and mass transit are similar. Um, they both provide publish, subscribe, and point-to-point messaging on top of MSMQ. Um, Difference-wise, we support RabbitMQ. I don't know if they support that yet. Um, I I know that M Service Bus is a commercial product, and mm-hmm. Udi, I mean, he's, he's built a great business on top of M Service Bus, and I I have a lot of respect for that. You know, when we started Mass Transit, we looked at M-Service Bus because mm. it kind of was in the space. And being open source people, we're like, we want to support that open source ecosystem. But after looking at it for a while, we kind of thought, well, you know, how hard can this be? You know, right. that's, like, that's like the initiation of every open source project. How hard can this be? And then five years later, we're still putting features into it. So right. I guess it was harder than we thought. <laughs> and differences, Mass Transit is a... Uh, uh, an open source project? And Service Bus is open source also, but I believe the licensing has gone commercial with the newer version. Mm-hmm. That's right. I, kn- I knew it was. Yeah, it is commercial. Yeah. yeah, whereas Mass Transit is, it's Apache 2.0. There's no commercial option available. It's just kind of open and out there and, you know, in use by a lot of people. Okay. And it is a GitHub project, right? You can just go get the code. Yeah, yeah. It's all on GitHub. Um we have the mass transit organization on GitHub, which has all the code on it. It's also forked a number of other places. We've mm-hmm. also kind of tried to build a a stack organization on GitHub called the Orange Book, which essentially collects all the open source projects that are part of our kind of standard stack for building applications and put them under one umbrella. So when people say, well, what do you use to build? We can just say, well, go look at the Orange Book project. It has all the different open source projects we use to kind of build our application. Yeah, this is not just one tool when you're going to build out infrastructure like this. There's a bunch of different pieces going on at once. Well, yeah, because when you're talking about using mass transit, you're talking about building a lot of small autonomous services Mm -hmm. that are kind of like following the single responsibility principle. You've got a single business context or a, a context in your application that needs to do some sort of work. So when you're creating a lot of these small services, it becomes an issue of, well, how do I manage these services? Now, we're not just running inside of IIS. So we have a project called Top Shelf that lets you easily create Windows services. Ah, okay. So what is Top Shelf? Uh, Top Shelf is a very simple, lightweight library that allows you to just go into Visual Studio, create a console application, add a reference to our NuGet package, and with five or six lines of code, have a self-installing Windows service that you can deploy on any Windows server. Uh, a Windows service? Yeah, a service. It runs in the services control panel. Yeah, okay, not a web service, a Windows service. Correct. Very cool. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of people that have been building apps, you know, they build these WCS services and they build all these other RPC-type services. They host them inside IIS. Mm. Well, when you're building messaging services, one of the key attributes of building these services is they are autonomous. They run in their own execution context. Right. You know, they have their own thread, their own process. Well, once you create two or three Windows services, you really get tired of doing it, so we kind of created Top Shelf to do that for you, so we didn't have to repeat all that boilerplate code every time. 
Right. Yeah, and believe it or not, making a Windows service has its quirks and installing <laughs> it and all of that. Yeah, the install util stuff and all that gets kind of painful. So this is just very simple, just command line, my service, space, install, and it's installed as a service and you're done. I love it. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, Just Decompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the Just Decompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile or vote for one suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to Telerik.com slash .NET decompiling and remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I want to jump back to something you said earlier on here, Chris, which I think is really important in the pattern of service buses. You were talking about how when you uh, have a new customer added, you could say on the bus, hey, a new customer has been added. And any number of services that are listening can respond to that if they choose to. But my experience working with queues like MSMQ, when you add a message onto a queue, only one thing can pop it off. Once one uh, service has consumed it, it's off the, the, the queue now and, and nobody else can get at it. How does multiple services respond to a message like that? Okay, so that's where kind of the mass transit glue comes into play. When you're using mass transit, you, to, you create an instance of a bus for your service. And when you create that instance, you subscribe to the message types that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. And in the case of MSMQ, Mass Transit has kind of a multi-cache sharing of subscriptions across all the services that are in your network. So when you subscribe to type A, anytime anybody publishes a message of type A, Mass Transit, when you say publish, looks at all the subscribers who have subscribed to A and sends a copy of the message to them in their queue. So it actually does a fan-out publish to multiple queues with one call. This is the a pub-sub pattern, and, and mass transit is responsible for that behavior. Correct, and we do that. Now, if you're using RabbitMQ, mm-hmm. RabbitMQ is an AMQP broker, and it has this concept of exchanges and queues. Sorry, Chris, what is AMQP? So AMQP is the advanced message queue protocol that kind of grew out of the financial services industry. Uh, it was a, It was meant to be kind of a a standard messaging protocol between business entities, and RabbitMQ implements the AMQP protocol. Nice. And and uses Erlang in the process, which we know is, from other shows, is awesomely scalable, cool programming environment. Yeah, Erlang is one of those things that if you've got the chops to program in Erlang, good for you, because I'm not quite there yet. (laughs) (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) Those people are scary. I even took a course at at Strange Loop at it last year, and I was just like, okay, this is really cool, but man, is it really very, very terse. (laughs) But the bottom line, you know, getting back to the original question is, is, you know, I think the huge thing about a good bus is this pub-sub model so that the the 
app pushing up the message doesn't need to know who needs to consume it. It just pushes it up. And then there's this whole separate service dealing with all the subscribers so they can all consume it because it's all that V2 stuff. Later on, when we add a new feature where we're evaluating, say, fraudulent customers, I don't have to tell any of the other apps about this. I just hook onto the bus and it's able to do its work and then spread its concerns around, say, a, a fraudulent customer uh, totally independently of the other apps. Yeah, and that, and that's exactly kind of how it works. If you think about it, if every time you process a credit card transaction, mm-hmm. you produce an event that that transaction occurred, and you included metadata about that purchase, such as what state it was in, whether it was a physical card swipe, whether it was a certain dollar amount, whether it was purchasing gas, you know, the type of purchase. Right. You could build a system completely on top of that that just observes those events and builds fraud patterns. You know, if you bought gas at five gas stations within 20 minutes, within three miles of each other, chances are you're, you're selling gas for cash. Right. Mm. Yeah. Something's going on. Exactly. Can I get back to this idea of types? Um, cause I'm really fascinated as to you said you register certain types and when those types are recognized, that sort of determines where things get routed. Um, it's very curious to me. How how exactly does that work? Okay, well, when we started looking at mass transit and how we were going to handle the, the routing and the subscribing to messages, historically from the JMS world, which is the Java messaging system, it's kind of part of Java, and every Java message broker supports it, they're heavily based on the concept of topics, and then the body content of the message is kind of up for grabs. You know, sometimes it's XML, sometimes it's text, I mean, it's a variety. We wanted to make it easy with mass transit. And so we looked at kind of how inversion of control containers dealt with types and mapping types to dependencies within objects. And we thought, well, why don't we just take a message? You can define it using something like an interface. And then you subscribe to that interface. And by subscribing to that interface, you're saying, hey, when a message of this type arrives on the bus, um, arrives in my queue, I want you to create this class and pass me that message so that I can do something with it. So we're very much activating consumers that are subscribed to message types as messages come into the queue. And Mass Transit handles all of the threading and the transaction isolation and all of the, all of the plumbing that you would get, like if you're using IIS to host a web service, you're getting that in Mass Transit. So essentially what you have to do is create a separate interface or or type class whatever it is for each input type that you want for each shall we say it's almost like a remote method call right correct i mean if you think about when you know with asp.net mvc everybody's all hyped about we have model binding now where we Mm. can say well well here's my controller here's my action and here's my input model and it's this class we're doing the same thing with messaging Mm. that's being done there yeah that's pretty smart and, it, and it's a pattern that we actually see in almost every single application context we see. You get a web request. If it's a REST request, you've got a certain model for that. If mm-hmm. it's a controller action, you've got a model for that. If it's a message, you've got a model for that. It's a pattern we see everywhere when we're talking about invoking code in some sort of service. Right. And since you can only pass one message, you're basically passing one object of one particular type. Now, and it doesn't, as you say, it's not going to look at any of the members of that class and determine, oh, well, because this one has an, an ID of such and such, we're going to pass it around here. You, you're you actually going to have to create a separate class or a separate 
interface for each sort of uh, routing that you want. Isn't that true? Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, we have an add-on that kind of sits on top of it called the distributor that can actually do kind of the content-based load balancing. Hmm. And we use that we use that in one of our systems because we talk to a lot of external entities. And so putting those behind a messaging system so that since we're making web service calls out to other entities, those can be slow sometimes. So what we did is since we have one message type, we have this thing that sits on top called the distributor, which can interrogate the message and make decisions about which workers actually process that message. So it's kind of like a load balancer router kind of piece. Wow, yeah, that is pretty cool. Um and and it does sort of take away a lot of the a lot of the uh the the sort of the mapping. So yeah, I I like that solution. I've been just trying to wrap my head around it while you've been talking about it and yeah, I, I kinda like it. Very nice. Yeah, well well because the problem we have is when you deal with messaging, well, how are we gonna format the message? Well, MSMQ by default I think uses the binary formatter. Well then you have version issues with that. By making everything interfaces if you then evolve the interface or add a new interface later, you can just add that to the class that's being published. And if you publish a message of a class and it implements interface A, B, and C, anyone who's subscribed to interface A gets a copy, anyone who's subscribed to interface B gets a copy, and anyone mm-hmm. who's subscribed to interface C gets a copy. So it's more of a, here's my one message I'm publishing, and people can subscribe to parts of that message, and everybody gets a copy, and everybody's happy. That's like, wicked cool. It's very, very cool. Very That's, powerful. Yeah, no kidding. Well, Richard, you know what time it is. Ah, uh, must be that happy time again. It is not time to uh, remove the water cooling hardware from your servers. Who, who would do that? It is not time for that. It is time, <laughs> however, <laughs> to give away some stuff. Oh, what and do we got? We're, we have another Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to Woo-hoo. give away, and that's everything Telerik makes in one box. Of course, our premier sponsor, Telerik. We love those guys. Um, and today's winner is James Hartman from Mason, Ohio. Ah, congratulations, James. Golf clap for James. Golf clap for James. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about here, every show we give away uh, some stuff to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club picked at random. And we have thousands of members now. And if you want to join, just go to the .netrocks.com website, click on the buttons that says Get Free Stuff, and uh, you too could win. And every December, we're going to give away $5,000 worth of technology of some kind, handpicked by Richard the Toy Boy and myself. So you want to get in on that. For sure. That will be the subject of debate on the road trip, what to build in December. Hey, Chris, how does this fit into a CQRS architecture? Did, I mean, I, I've always thought the buses and CQRS went out hand-in-hand. What do you think? Uh, CQRS, you don't have to have messaging to do CQRS, yeah. but it's a, it's a pretty natural fit. Mm-hmm. I mean, taking your commands, getting them prepared so that they have you know a very high chance of success, and then just putting them onto a durable queue, I think that's, that's how we're trying to build our systems these days. You know, we're not... Gone are the days of the single interface where you have the create order and then the get order list. Right. Method. I mean, you know, the other advantage is when you create that order, you can produce that order created event and update kind of your order view tables that are, you know, taking part of the read side, you know, the high volume read aspect yeah. of CQRS. 
So I think I think the buses are a natural fit there. I think messaging in general and asynchronous processing in general is a high fit for CQRF. But as soon as you start playing this game of wanting to scale out different pieces of the app at different rates, which CQRS does so well, you you start slipping buses in all over the place. Yeah, you're definitely going to start breaking apart your services and having multiple services kind of communicating. And you're going to do that within a particular business context. You know, the billing system and the ordering system are really kind of unrelated from a processing perspective, but the billing system can advise the ordering system to not take orders from customers who don't pay their bills. Sure. So you've got that clear separation there. Mm-hmm. Um, the trick is probably to not overdo it on the context. I think some people try to say, oh, well, we'll apply a CQRS to this big, huge application. And they've got to keep in mind that an application is a sum of its parts. It's not just one big monolithic app. So trying to build into a big, giant, single-solution, massive enterprise application is probably not the smartest approach. And you got to really really identify the themes between those different business functions. Do you, do you sort of sort of a – I hate to say the word best practices – which is really two words, but because it's such an evil phrase, but do you have a sort of set of things you say, like avoid these mistakes that I've made in the past around using a service bus? Yeah, are there any don't do that? Let me throw this one out there. If you're starting to use mass transit today, mm-hmm. don't subscribe all your services to the same queue because every <laughs> service instance needs its own queue. That is like the number one question asked on the mailing list. Right. So now it's in the documentation five times and on this show. So <laughs> get it out Every service gets its own queue. Any questions? Yeah. yeah. Stop um, that. The other thing is to focus on using interfaces for messages instead of classes. Okay. Yeah. And probably the other one is don't look at it as just a way to replace the RPC because a lot of times we see people trying to serialize classes with tons of virtual members and tons of virtual implementation types and trying to figure out why things don't work. Mm. So what do you get? Two megabyte messages? Yeah, that can be a problem. Yeah. You know, MS- MSMQ has a four meg limit, but we try to keep our messages under 10K. And yeah. if it's a document message, maybe under 100K. But Hey, but now arrays can be two gigs. So there you go. Hey, what's that array support? You never know <laughs> And I'm sorry. You've got to think in the context of it's not you're not the only one with a message out there. They're being yeah. queued. Somebody's storing them on disk. <laughs> Stop it! Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> At least we don't turn them into faxes. You know. Yeah. The, the other best practices really kind of fall into the area of operational readiness and deployment. I mean, don't don't deploy your heavily MSMQ dependent service with the default MSMQ settings and the messages being stored on the C drive. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. Put them on a highly available disk. Yeah. The OS disk. And something fast. You know, I'm finding great success with, uh, with SSDs in that kind of role. Yeah. I, I think SSDs are one of those drugs that you could never wean yourself off of. I'm so with you. And my, and why would you want to? Right. Exactly. It just feels so good. (laughs) Exactly. One angle I want to get at here. Why is it important to you that this is open source? Because, you know, Generally speaking, when I look at projects that are using buses like this, they're they're high value projects. Like the the price of the software isn't all that important in that, that context. I think to me, and I mean, I started being heavily into open source probably five or six years ago. Um, I think the biggest benefit to me is the feedback from the other people using the code and looking at the code. Uh, I've 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 had many an argument with legal teams on what is business value. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in the business of selling widgets, 
the infrastructure you use to sell those widgets is not something that is uniquely business valuable right. to the widget company. And a thing like a message bus that, you know, there's half a dozen implementations out there, many of them commercial, many yep. of them proprietary. And what, what's the benefit of that to your business if you create one? Nothing. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a piece of infrastructure and how you get things done. And your infrastructure is not your business value. Right. Well, unless you're Verizon or ATC. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously what they're selling. But if you're selling widgets, the fact that you use MSNQ on top of whatever doesn't make your customer any happier or sadder. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, it's always been kind of this develop in the open, get feedback. So, I mean, if, if you create a project that's open source and you get a lot of bad feedback on it, if nobody uses it, is it really something that you should be doing as a company? Sure. Or is it better to look at something someone else has already built and adapting that to your needs? I mean, I do like the honesty and openness of doing this as an open source approach. I still feel like, even with the Apache 2 license, like I feel like you've done everything right here. Introducing this to a large customer of mine, I'm going to have to have that argument. Where I wouldn't have that argument with N Service Bus or hack even BizTalk at X many tens of thousands of dollars. Like they don't even blink at the price tag, they blink at the ownership. Yeah, and that's kind of one of the things that come up. Um, there's been several times that I've been contacted, you know, would you be willing to come out for a week and train us? You know, do you offer commercial support? Is there right. an entity that offers commercial support? And quite honestly, I, I love what I do where I'm working and I don't have an interest to do that. Mm-hmm. But Many people have expressed, hey, would you be interested in us starting up a support thing? Well, it's an open source project. If you want to build a business around supporting it, that's, you know, an opportunity for somebody to do that. It's fine with you, but you're not going to be that guy. Yeah, I just, I'm not going to be that guy. Mm -hmm. Of course, to say that, to say that I'm not providing support, you know, we have the mailing list, we have support. We have a lot of people that get a lot of information from us, and I've even gone on site to some companies on vacation days to kind of help them out and get them started just because, you know, it seems like you know, interesting people to meet and get feedback on how they use it and stuff. Chris, you're too generous with your time. you got to cut this out. And and how do you even have time? Because I'm looking on your uh, GitHub page, which is github.com fatboyg phatboyg and man, you are quite prolific. Check check out Magnum, Richard, which is a library for the larger than average developer. He's got a great comic there, logo with a gun sticking right in your face. <laughs> the library for the larger than average developer. Hey, I'm a larger than average developer. <laughs> Physically, that is. Maybe not mentally. But tell us about Magnum. Uh, Magnum was kind of the kitchen sink. You know, we started building out multiple open source projects and we had a lot of kind of code that just was always being reproduced everywhere. And so Magnum kind of became that kitchen sink and kind of the incubator for new ideas. You know, we've created three or four projects that originated in Magnum and then became separate projects just because they got too big and the dependency on Magnum kind of shifting quickly underneath it became a problem. So we broke them out. Um, for instance, Magnum has a full DSL for building state machines that's mm-hmm. used in the Saga implementation in Mass Transit. Wow. Cool. Well, we, we decided that that was getting to be kind of a problem of managing it, so we created a new project called Automatonomous, <laughs> which is a standalone, <laughs> no-dependency state machine library that using DSLs you can build state machines, and then that also integrates separately with Mass Transit. I love Automatonomous. 
That's awesome. Yeah, that, that came out of the kind of the whole hip hop anonymous kind of thing. Yeah. There. <laughs> Automaton <laughs> anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> the, the thing about creating an open source project is, is you got to have visibility, and if you can't Google it, nobody's going to find it. Yeah, you, right. So you got to come up with words that you know if people can't spell it, how are they going to Google it? So it's kind of a catch twenty two. How important it is to get a good name. Yeah, naming the projects is always kind of a fun thing, and you'd be actually surprised at how much time some of these names bounce back and forth on little Skype chats of, let's try this one. No, that's lame. That too, sounds too much like a feminine hygiene product. Pick a different <laughs> name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've been there. Been there. <laughs> so there's more to Magnum than just the state machine, though. Yeah, Magnum has a whole bunch of concerns in it. There's... Uh, a lot of explorations in functional programming, uh, a routing engines for building uh, routes on top of IIS route uh, handlers. Um, a rules engine actually originated out of Magnum called O'Doyle Rules, which is now its own standalone project. Um, yeah, there's quite a bit in there. The benchmarking code that used to be in Magnum is now called Benchmark Key, which is a separate standalone project, which actually has a cool little NuGet console that, if you're not using NuGet, man, that's yeah. The fact that you can build PowerShell scripts that install into Visual Studio so you can just go out to the console and add commands to their Visual Studio while they're using your code. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we love NuGet. NuGet is your friend. Phil Hack rocks. Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of active reports. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support, so that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active Reports from Component 1. Smarter Components for Smarter Developers. Tell us about some of the other projects that you've got up on GitHub, because there's many, and they're great. Yeah, there's quite a few. Uh, Mass Transit and Magnum we discussed. Top Shelf we discussed earlier, which mm -hmm. is our service library. We're about to do a, a version 3.0 release of Top Shelf, which kind of goes, it's almost like a reboot to 1.0, because Top Shelf kind of grew and grew and get bigger and bigger, and startup times were impacted and a lot of functionality got put in there that we just don't use too often. So we kind of wanted to get back to a basic compositional approach. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the problems we had is, I mean, we started mass transit and top shelf five years ago. Well, five years ago, there was no NuGet. Open source was very difficult to manage in the .NET community. And it, it was very important to have simple, easy to deploy assemblies for people's projects. Mm. Now with NuGet, it's like, oh, it's pulled in three dependencies. We don't care. You know, it was just easy to add. So we're trying to kind of trying to reboot the project towards the more modular approach where you can have NuGet with multiple dependencies and kind of all that stuff. So that's really been helping us out. Yeah, it does feel like Microsoft's done a good job of letting open source be part of the solution. Uh, it took a while though. It, it did take a while. I mean, that was, I remember a lot of conversations where we talked about early package managers for .NET before NuGet came out. It's like, we've got to solve this problem. And fortunately, it's solved now, and it seems to be catching on really well. You know, it's always a good thing. And it, it, but it does feel like you your projects are proliferating because each project you build creates new problems for yourself that needs another project. That's an interesting approach to thinking of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I think what we find is as we build these projects and they get bigger and we solve more concerns, the we see a lot of reproducible patterns. You know, when I build libraries and and in the systems that I'm creating, I tend to harvest those from production code. So as we harvest more code from production code and make the library stronger, we start to see patterns that are reproducible within the libraries themselves. Mm-hmm. So things like dependency management, things like you know execution pipelines and paths for calling and intercepting calls. You know, when you think about the ASP.NET pipeline, you know, you've got that big 14-chain thing of handlers and route handlers and action handlers and you know, the, the call structure of ASP.NET. You get that in pretty much every application you have. So thinking about how you can take that that middleware and extract that out. You know, one of the things in watching the Node.js community evolve is how they're building very tight, concrete pieces of functionality that they can layer together. Looking at how we can do that within both the message handlers for mass transit or the route handlers inside of a, a web application or within a service line, even a simple command line dispatcher for utility. When you start to make that compositional, you can really build out some useful functionality and reuse some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. This is a conversation that's come up before recently where we're talking about how the inheritance model, the chaining model is a problem and that more and more we're getting into this compose model. And that's really, you know, what you're describing with mass transit is all about how we compose applications. We don't get punished for building new versions. In fact, there's no concept of new version anymore. There's just new services. Yeah, you really get to where you have an additive model and it, in an agile development environment, you know, I work in a group out of our Emeryville office now, and one of the things that we have is we have many, many teams working on the same kind of platform application. Mm-hmm. Well, these, these teams can't depend upon being able to go into the master solution and just add a new class or something and right. kind of disrupt that. You've got this additive development model. If you, if you were going to add, say, one of these auditing features to your system, Think about the budget impact that you have to go and modify the core application to be able to do that. Yeah, you, you well, just won't do it. It's too dangerous. Yeah, the, yeah, the core team's going to say, well, we need a full QA regression. Whereas if you just say, well, you know what? I'm just going to plug in and observe a couple of your events, and I'm going to build some metrics data out of that, and I can build this all alongside, and I don't even need the original development team to help me. From a budgeting perspective, that's a lot easier to justify. For sure. But it's also this idea that, you know, the services never go away. You may build a new version of that service, but you don't take down the old one because there are still other services depending on that one. So there's never really a V2 or a V3. It's just another incarnation, another incarnation. They sort of stack on each other. Yeah, and you get this you get this kind of evolutionary model of your application versus you know every version being a new release. Right. Yeah, no, no more big bangs. Yeah, I mean, you think about when you've got these tightly coupled RPC with all these service reference applications. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the weekend update. Yeah. You, know, you, you take the system down for 12 hours, you replug everything back in and hope it all works. Whereas now we're more, you know, they expect 24 by 7. It's more of a continuous deployment model. You need to be able to bring up new services without breaking old ones. Right. You, know, you, can't, you can't change contracts anymore in a breaking way because you'll take down services that are depending on them. But there is a point where you're going to pile up so many services. It's like, this is a crufty bus. And I, I struggle with instrumentation to figure out which of these services is actually still being used. What can be, what can we start to trim away some of these elderly bits of code? Yeah. And that, I think that comes to more of a, 
I guess, kind of an application governance or thinking about the direction of the app. If you're if you're replacing a service with something new, but keep the old one up for a while, mm-hmm. you kind of need to be ex- you need to kind of be explicit about when you want that to go away. Set a deadline. Yeah, exactly. We want to we want to turn off the old routing engine by June so that we can have the new one up so that we can start working on the next one that we're going to roll out for next year. Yeah. And just yeah, ways to put. I don't, I don't mind keeping three versions of a given service up, but once we're at six or seven, that's yeah. frightening. <laughs> but yeah. I've got some I've got some customers out there with old apps, and literally in some cases a dozen versions because they're just afraid to shut stuff off. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the interesting thing too, because if you can see where the messages are going, you can actually trace and audit them. So if you see that messages are never ending up in a certain part of your system, you can kind of observe that data and make some decisions based on that. And I've become a big fan of runtime intelligence by preemptive for that sort of stuff. It's in the box in 2010, although nobody seems to know it's there, but just its ability to to snap onto assemblies and just instrument every method call for free. And phone it home. And just let you know. I, I love this idea of just having the instrument to say, that service hasn't been called in three months. Yeah. Any questions? Very cool. Yeah. Do you have a particular set of tools you use for that kind of instrumentation, or are you just a log machine? How do you do it? Well, you know, that's kind of one of the things when you get into building message-based applications where you have a lot of disconnected services. Mm -hmm. uh, You don't have, you know, you can't F10 or F11 through the code. No. You're really dealing with coordinating logs and doing kind of that log surfacing and analysis. Um, So it's it's a little different tool set. Um, Probably the biggest thing is, making sure that when we create our messages that we give each message a unique identifier and then a correlation identifier so that messages that are related in some way can be snapped together in logs and kind of assembled and reviewed to find out when things go sideways. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of just message search type stuff. There is no one log. There's dozens of logs. And yeah. You've got to somehow relate them together. Right. And so sometimes what we'll do is use the events to kind of build an audit service that looks at the different life cycle events within a particular transaction and compiles those together so that we can see, well, we got a received, we got a process, and we got a routed, but we never got a sent event. So we can't guarantee that this particular transaction was sent to the provider that needs to deal with it. So we built some of those auditing tools in to kind of give us real-time data of you know, how long it's taking transactions to go through our system and what's our percentage of ones that are actually getting through. And then so we can reconcile the ones that didn't get through, pull them out, and then make sure that they get sent. Um, so there's some custom tooling there. Sure. Out of the, out of the box tooling, uh, I'm kind of a performance geek, so I tend to over-optimize probably prematurely many times. <laughs> but I tend to benchmark my code, and I've written several benchmarking tools to do that because if you can minimize the amount of time that a library spends doing something, you can do it more often. You know, think of some of the application decisions you've made because say you receive data in a cryptic format and it's so cryptic and difficult to parse that format that you do it once and then convert it into some intermediate format like XML or something. Well, parsing XML is no more fun than parsing anything else. It's just something we're more familiar with. If you can minimize the amount of time spent doing something, you can do it more often and you avoid the need to kind of translate into an intermediate format just for whatever reason. Performance of code has always been kind of important. For sure. Chris, tell us about internals. 
the internals project? Okay, well, internal, since, since we moved to GitHub, I guess it was two or three years ago, GitHub has this concept of submodules where you can just include another Git repository inside the project and use that code inside your assemblies that you're building. Um, well, Magnum was kind of like where we used to keep the kitchen sink of tools, but Magnum became a dependency that was difficult to manage. So we start IL merging it and doing all this crazy code, and we thought, well, why not just make it a folder that you can include as a Git submodule into your project? Visual Studio has a cool way in the CS proj file to say, hey, here, include this folder and every CS file underneath it yep. into my project. We made all the classes in the internals project internal, so they're never publicly available outside of the assembly. And it makes it an easy way to kind of put these kitchen sink type tools like dictionary caching and interface reflection extension methods and all this stuff. All the garbage you end up cutting and pasting normally, we just made a Git submodule out of it that we can then add into a project. That's so cool. And and it's so it's not just the the little internals that you guys have done, but it you add your own internals to it. You fork it and you take it and you add your own, take all the stuff that you've mined from all your apps that you use over and over again and add them. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's made it real easy to kind of share code between projects. And since GitHub submodules are managed independently as a separate repo under yours, you can link to a particular commit of it. So you don't have to take all the new stuff that's been added. It's, it's just an easy way to share code without cutting and pasting it between projects all the time. Yeah, I like that. So do you plan on just sharing every little thing that comes off of your fingertips on GitHub? <laughs> well, that's kind of a good question. I've actually been working for about the last three months on a library to parse uh, transactional data. Typically in the medical industry, we use two different standards. One of them is called HL7 and the other one is called X12. Mm-hmm. Um, you Remember I mentioned just a few minutes ago about these cryptic input formats that are mm-hmm. a pain to deal with? Mm-hmm. I've, I've built a library that actually makes it very easy to deal with these in a very object graph friendly kind of way. Um, but I'm trying to get that open source because, you know, we also discussed the difference between infrastructure and business value. Mm-hmm. This might have some business value. So I've got to try to see if I can get that done. But, but basically, if I can get away with it, everything I do, I try to make open source. That's cool. Hey, does the uh, code ICD9 mean anything to you? <laughs> <laughs> Not, not as much as ICD-10 means right now. Oh, ICD-10. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the upcoming storm after the latest healthcare standards craze of 5010. Which is never-ending, you know, independent yeah. on who's got control of Congress, apparently. Yeah. Crazy. A lot of this stuff kind of happens anyway. I mean, standards kind of evolve, whether we're, you know, regardless of what laws and stuff come into play. So there's always technology being built. Well, Chris, this has been so much fun. We'd love to have you back on a regular basis. Uh, thanks for sharing your stuff with the world, and thanks for sharing with us. Well, thanks for having me on, and yeah, it's been fun. I've listened to your show and gone to some of your events, even here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I think you guys came through a couple of years ago. And 2010, yep. Yeah, so it's always good to have you guys out there. Well, we may be in Arkansas this time. Right, Richard? Looks like it, yep. Bentonville. A couple hours out of, out of Tulsa. Bentonville, yeah. Arkansas is on the list. Right. Well, yeah, they've got quite... I think they have three companies in Bentonville, and everybody else supports those three companies. Mm. So. <laughs> they're biggins, though. Yeah, they're huge companies. Yeah. I, actually, I did a speaking tour up there a couple months ago. It's, you can do four talks in a day if you really want to. Yeah. that many companies. All right, Chris. Thanks again. All right, thanks. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. 
Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a